0: pleasure to introduce Dr. Heather Dichter from uh, De Montfort University uh, in Leicester to this joint event of the Modern German History Seminar and the Sport and Leisure History Seminar at the IHR. Um, Heather is the author of a monograph entitled Bidding for the 1968 Olympic Games International Sports Cold War Battle with NATO, which came out with the University of Massachusetts press this year. She's also the editor of Soccer Diplomacy, International Relations and Football since 1914, uh, which came out in 2020, Diplomatic Games, Sports, Statecraft and International Relations since 1945, which came out in 2014, and Olympic Reform ten years later, which very well, uh, it was very well timed and came out in 2012 together with a whole series of special issues and articles on football, ice hockey, skiing, athletics, politics, and diplomacy. She's therefore extremely well qualified to talk about the Berlin Wall and the end of free travel in international sports, which is the subject of this evening's paper. Heather.
1: All right, thank you so much, Um, and I I really want to thank both the uh, Modern German History Seminar and the Sport and Leisure um, History Seminar uh, for coming together to have this um, joint opportunity for me to speak um, about uh, a little part of my my book. Um, The book as a whole examines the political factors external to sport which impacted the selection process for hosting not only the Olympic games, but um, a number of other international sporting events, which um, is what I'm gonna talk about today. But it also considers NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, outside of its explicit military purpose, um, demonstrating how issues completely unrelated to security and mutual defense mattered to the organization, um, particularly because of the low domestic public opinions of NATO, which will come out a little bit during my talk today. So there we go. Um, So when the wall appeared the morning of August 13th, 1961, freedom of movement was at the heart of the now physically divided city. More than 3 million German Democratic Republic or GDR or East German residents had fled to the Federal Republic, primarily through West Berlin. The inability to travel to the West was one of the many reasons that so many um, East Germans had left the country permanently. The GDR leadership viewed the construction of the Berlin Wall as a way to secure its own borders and solidify the regime's legitimacy with its own citizens. The Federal Republic government was outraged at the physical representation of the Iron Curtain and considered it yet another way that the illegitimate regime restricted the rights and freedoms of Germans in Berlin. With international sport, East Germany and West Germany had actually been forced by the International Olympic Committee to form an all-German Olympic team since Germany's return to the Olympics after World War II and the Allied occupation of the country. In response to the appearance of the Berlin Wall, the West German Olympic Committee met on August 16th, just three days after the Berlin Wall. The West German sport leaders claimed the East German action stopping freedom of movement actually violated international sport ideals and declared the construction of the Berlin Wall, quote, contrary to the fundamental principles of humanity and in our field means a violation of all the principles of the world of sport." quote. They immediately ended all sport interactions with East Germany. The GDR sport officials, however, blamed the break in German-German sport on their West German counterparts, arguing it was the sport leaders in the Federal Republic who had terminated sport relations with East German athletes, completely ignoring the whole fact that the Berlin Wall was built in the middle of the city. Now, the Berlin Wall not only ended free travel in the German city, but it also had far-reaching implications for travel more broadly. Restrictions on East German travel to the West had already been one way that NATO had attempted to force East Germany to change policies. American, British, and French representatives comprised the Allied Travel Office, or ATO, which was a legacy of the post-war occupation of Germany. The ATO set policies to which all NATO member states adhered. The ATO had first imposed travel restrictions on East Germans in September 1960, when the GDR encroached on the special status of Berlin, Um, but then the ATO lifted those restrictions in March 1961. Following the Berlin Wall, the ATO again banned the authorization of temporary travel documents, and and you see the form here, um, which is also known as the TTD. And this document was required for East Germans to travel to any country in um, the West, especially NATO member states. Any East German whose application fell under the categories of sport, trade, agriculture, medical and scientific, professional, political, cultural, press, and tourism could no longer obtain a TTD from the Allied Travel Office after the Berlin Wall. NATO readily accepted these renewed restrictions in fields where East Germany could easily gain propaganda or financial benefit. They did this as retaliation for the GDR hindering freedom of movement with the construction of the Berlin Wall. This support of ATO policy meant East Germans from any banned category would receive neither a TTD from the Allied Travel Office, nor a visa from the country that they wanted to visit. Now, the ATO only issued a TTD if a visa from the destination country was forthcoming, but NATO countries could withhold issuing a visa if a TTD would not be granted. So because East Germans needed both the TTD and the visa to travel to any NATO member state, this process created a circuitous problem for East Germans, but a way for NATO member states to deflect blame when East Germans could not travel to events within their borders. So The Cold War, of course, before 1961, had already infiltrated international sport, but the appearance of the Berlin Wall shattered the illusion that sport and politics should remain separate, although international sports still attempted to function along those lines. The 15 NATO member states hosted a large portion of international sporting events, and especially European and World Championships. These events became the focus of East German efforts to gain de facto facto recognition, where their recently established flag and national anthem would be on display. To avert this recognition, NATO sought to prevent athletes and teams that represented East Germany from traveling to these competitions within their borders. The actions taken in response to the Berlin Wall thus changed the international sporting landscape. World and European championships slated to be held in several NATO member states felt the repercussions of the Berlin crisis keenly. Even though international federations argued their sports were above politics and tried to keep the Cold War out of their activities, the Berlin Wall and NATO travel policies made that impossible if a federation had recognized East Germany and then allocated an event to a NATO member state. Sporting events either continued as planned, but with fewer competitors and a diminished um, success as a major international sporting event. Or the International Federation relocated events to other countries where all athletes, but in reality, really just focusing focusing on the East German athletes, could be guaranteed the ability to travel there. That so many international sporting events in almost every NATO member state confronted this issue in 1962 and 1963 demonstrates just how acute this problem was. The local regions hosting these international sporting events had hoped to gain positive public relations and benefits from expanded tourism in the short and long term. When NATO travel restrictions damaged or relocated events, however, the local area did not receive the anticipated benefits associated with organizing international sporting events. The national government and NATO bore the brunt of the criticism in the press as the soft power efforts backfired publicly. In response, international federations increasingly favored selecting host cities in Eastern European or neutral states, a concern to international sport leaders and diplomats from NATO member states who now saw their dominant position within international sport starting to wane. Suddenly, Sports and sporting events that rarely garnered publicity or the interest of governments now became major issues addressed at the highest echelons of the diplomatic court. Now, in early 1962, both the United States and France were slated to host a world championship. Ice hockey in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Alpine Skiing in Chamonix, France. Both the International Ice Hockey Federation, or IAHF, and the International Ski Federation, which goes by the acronym FIS from the French version of the organization's name. Both of these organizations had granted the GDR separate recognition in the early 1950s. Three potential elements of hosting these events troubled both the French and American governments as potentially providing the GDR with de facto recognition. The first was an official East German team using GDR passports to enter their country. The second was the fact that the flags of all participating countries hang around the venue of the sporting event, um, which meant, in this case, potentially the East German flag flying at the venue. And thirdly, in the case of an East German victory, it's national anthem playing. Now, while the hypothetical forms of de facto recognition all involved state symbols, travel became the way these concerns played out. Restricting East German travel would prevent any symbolic recognition at the events themselves. The Ice Hockey and Ski Federations each attempted to chart a path to keep the Cold War German problem at bay. Yet neither organization was able to do so, as you'll see. Although diplomats acted in support of their country's policies, they recognized that the public perception of government involvement in sport was negative, and if it became known, could damage NATO's reputation. Diplomats and NATO therefore sought to deflect or even hide from the public their actions with respect to preventing East German participation in the 1962 Ice Hockey and Alpine Skiing World Championships. Instead of the local areas benefiting from hosting these World Championships, the events received negative publicity and a diminished field of competition as a result of this political interference. These two events then became the example which other international federations sought to avoid. Now, FIS had awarded the 1962 Alpine Skiing World Championships to Chamonix, the French village in the Alps that had hosted the very first Winter Olympic Games in 1924. The recently reimposed NATO travel restrictions meant that the East German team could not receive the necessary documents to enter France. French ski officials and the French Foreign Ministry, however, feared that FIS would cancel the World Championships or decide to relocate it to another country if those East German skiers could not compete. The French High Commissioner for Youth and Sport even went on record questioning the idea of canceling the event, saying, Who will be the victims? Athletes from all over the world whose training has been going on intensively for months, but also our country, and especially Chamonix where nothing has been spared for this international competition to be a great success. So, fearing um, this problem, Fisk called an emergency meeting in early February 1962 um, over this issue of East German skiers competing at the World Championships in Chamonix. The French delegate stated that everything possible was being done in the attempt to get visas for the German athletes, but that in this situation, the decisions came from much higher places and could not be blamed on the French Ski Association. In a seven to five vote divided along political lines, FIS agreed to give France 48 hours to accept an alternative document in lieu of an East German passport so that East German skiers could enter the country and compete. If not, FIS would strip Chamonix of the event of the World Championships designation. Now, the FIS president even sent telegrams to the French Foreign Ministry, um, French President Charles de Gaulle, American President John F. Kennedy, and British Prime Minister Harold, Harold Macmillan, you see that telegram here, requesting the urgent authorization of French visas and tripartite ATO approval. By contacting world leaders, this hoped political intervention could solve these problems and the event could proceed originally as planned. Not surprisingly, none of the heads of state actually um, replied to the International Ski Federation. Diplomats were, though, working on this issue, but did not want to appear publicly to be influencing the sport. The State Department, um, in large part in response to the telegram to uh, President Kennedy, um, the State Department instructed its embassy in Switzerland to respond to the fifth president to convey NATO's position regarding the travel of East German athletes the French government continued to maintain the NATO and ATO travel policies and refused to acquiesce to the ski federation's demands. This therefore announced the removal of the world championship designation from the Chamonix event. Skiers from four communist states, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Yugoslavia immediately left France. But over 20 countries still had their athletes competing in Chamonix including all of the top competitors in alpine skiing. But the event had lost its prestige. Um, In addition, the event itself, in the the days leading up to it, um, there was a lack of snow on on the Alps, which left the organizers scrambling to arrange for more than a hundred men to transport enough snow to Chamonix, um, to its slopes. Until then, of course, two days before the competition began, heavy snow fell um, all over the, the mountains, which was great. Um, but then so much heavy snow fell during the event that it actually canceled one day of racing and disrupted the rest of the schedule, also caused an electrical failure that interrupted the television coverage, the electric scoreboard, and the public announcement system. So the event itself was a little bit shaky um, on top of all of the politics around it, but the political outcome, the Times of London reported, had caused consternation to the hoteliers and shopkeepers in the town who had regarded the awarding of the 1962 championships as a rich prize for the resort. The New York Times coverage also noted half-empty hotels and sparse crowds, as well as a deflated spirit in the town. International politics thus had a clear economic impact locally. The media criticism of the French government regarding Chamonix frustrated the French foreign ministry. The denial of travel documents to East German skiers was not a unilateral French decision. If this event had been held in any other NATO state, the outcome should have been the same. French diplomats raised their concerns both with the the German foreign ministry in Bonn and with the American embassy in Paris. The French government did not want to bear the brunt of the blame for the lack of East German participation, the diminished competitive field, and the weak financial benefit. The local businesses when it was other NATO countries who contributed to the common NATO policy. But as the host for the first World Championships impacted by the Berlin crisis, however, they did. Both the Western press and ski coaches criticized Fiss's decision to remove the World Championships designation from the event. They advocated that their athletes who had trained for two years and then were not able to actually compete for a World Championship would be the real losers. This negative publicity ultimately prompted FIS to um, have another emergency meeting and restore the World Championships designation for Chamonix. Of course, while the first announcement canceling the World Championships received worldwide attention, the later reversal received very little media coverage. Now, while France was dealing with these problems surrounding Chamonix, the United States was simultaneously confronting the same issue as the famous Broadmoor Resort in Colorado Springs was preparing to host the 1962 Ice Hockey World Championships. The organizing committee included U.S. Army Major General Marshall S. Carter, who later served as the director of the National Security Agency from 1965 to 1969. But in preparation for the ice hockey tournament to take place in um, 1962, Carter's responsibilities included liaising with the State Department regarding East German participation. By late November 1961, more than two months before the events in um, Chamonix take place, the State Department informed Carter that barring some dramatic change for the better in the Berlin situation, keeping in mind this is barely two months after the Berlin Wall went up, that the ATO would not issue TTDs for the East German ice hockey team to compete in Colorado Springs. Even if NATO relaxed the travel restrictions, the State Department told Carter that it would still not sanction entry of a national team representing the GDR into the United States. Yet in December, the IIHF released the group schedules for the World Championships and the schedule included both German teams. Publicly, it appeared that East Germany would compete in Colorado, but the organizing committee prepared for the opposite situation. Carter informed the State Department that the committee was in complete agreement with the department's position, and that the organizing committee was counting heavily on the Allied Travel Office's rejection of TTDs for an East German team so that the organizers could place the blame for their inability to participate elsewhere, either with the East Germans themselves for not securing the appropriate travel documents, or with the tripartite ATO and thus preventing the United States from appearing solely responsible for this action. Even though, of course, the United States was one of the three countries on the ATO. However, the IIHF policy had a policy that permitted the relocation of international tournaments if a host country refused visas to any of the participating teams. The organizing committee in Colorado Springs had already invested heavily in preparing for the World Championships, and did not want to be left empty handed. The West German Olympic Committee at the same time feared that the IAHF would actually relocate the world championships or that the United States would cave under pressure and change its policy to permit East German participation. So the West German Olympic Committee therefore requested Chancellor Konrad Adenauer to raise this issue during his November 1961 visit to the United States when he was meeting with President Kennedy where obviously the Berlin crisis was the main topic of discussion. But needless to say, the two men had significantly more pressing issues to address than ice hockey. um, So they never actually did talk about um, this tournament. The German embassy then approached the State Department the following month and the Americans reassured their German allies that they had no need um, to be concerned that the United States would weaken its position. In December, the East Germans went to the Allied Travel Office in Berlin and picked up several TTD forms for the World Championships in Colorado. East German newspapers frequently discussed the strength of the ice hockey team and its determination for the upcoming World Championships. But a month after picking up the forms, the East Germans still had not submitted any completed TTD applications to the Allied Travel Office arousing suspicions amongst the staff at the US mission in Berlin. This inaction indicated to the mission that East Germany knew its participation in Colorado Springs was politically impossible and they were therefore delaying their TTD applications until the last possible minute so that they could launch a heavy propaganda barrage on the United States and West Germany for their political intrusions into the world of sport or so they would claim when the visas and TTDs would be denied. In late January, the IAHF called a meeting in Geneva um, because they were concerned as to what might happen. And they invited the East Germans to discuss their travel problems and whether Colorado Springs should still remain as the host of the World Championships. The IAHF offered the East Germans the possibility of quietly accepting not participating in the 1962 World Championships in exchange for $20,000 U.S a guaranteed fifth seed at the 1963 World Championships in Sweden, which was pretty good because East Germany's ice hockey team really wasn't that um, talented, and no invitation for the Federal Republic for the 1963 World Championships as well. Even with all of these offers, the GDR turned them down, believing that the capitalist majority in the IAHF was more concerned with the expected revenues to be gained from holding the World Championships in the United States. They had two long days of meetings in Geneva, the first day not finishing until 2.30 in the morning, but ultimately they produced no resolution. In late February then, the IIHF president and other Canadian hockey officials, like their ski compatriots, wrote letters to President Kennedy and Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker that you see here, regarding the inability of East Germany to participate. And of course, all of these letters were to no avail, although Baker did actually send a, a polite reply um, to the president of the IHF, who actually was another Canadian. And for, or ultimately, the IHF accepted the position maintained by both the Colorado Springs Organizing Committee and the State Department, that neither of them were responsible for the inability of the East German team to participate in the Ice Hockey World Championships because another body, the ATO, had made that decision. Without East German participation, the Soviet Union planned to withdraw from the Colorado Springs World Championships. However, the Soviet Ice Hockey Federation decided it would not announce this decision until shortly before the tournament began to cause more problems for the American organizers and government. So they waited until about two weeks before the World Championships were to open. um, And at that point, the Ice Hockey Federations from the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Yugoslavia all announced they were withdrawing their teams in solidarity with East Germany's inability to attend the event. The 1962 World Championships did continue, but without those five teams from the communist bloc, and the tournament only had two pools instead of three, which had been the case the year before and was the case the year after. Sweden won and became the world champion, defeating Canada in the final. The United States placed third, and the Federal Republic and themselves finished in sixth place. The 1962 World Championships in alpine skiing and ice hockey thus became the first major sport casualties of the Berlin Wall. Because of travel restrictions on East German athletes, these two events forced the international sport community to confront the harsh reality of NATO policy. The Federal Republic followed these events closely, but allowed the Americans and the French to shoulder the work publicly. Both the French and American foreign ministries upheld the ATO and NATO policies regarding travel for East German sportsmen, even as the IIHF, FIS, and global media tried to pressure them to change their positions. As the host countries for world championships and also members of the tripartite ATO, the event organizers and diplomats all knew they had to speak carefully to prevent international federations from canceling or removing the world championships over the inability of East German athletes to participate. The communist bloc used these events to further their own political aims, demonstrating their continued support of East Germany and their supposed moral superiority over the West with upholding the values of sport. International sport leaders had hoped that sport could rise above the politics of the Cold War, but instead, Cold War divisions hurt these two world championships with diminished competitive fields and significantly less revenue for each region and event. Now, the inability of East German athletes and sport officials to travel to NATO countries in response to the Berlin Wall increasingly brought the Cold War into their ability to carry out one of their most important functions, which was overseeing international competitions. Particularly in sports where communist bloc states were dominant competitors, and the fear of a decimated competitive field was a real concern, international federations had to confront the reality of Cold War geopolitics. Wanting to prevent the financial losses of weakened competitions and extensive negative publicity, international federations increasingly considered relocating their events from NATO countries when East Germany could not participate. In several cases, they followed through with these plans. The change of the host country for many events began to erode the dominance of Western Europe and the United States um, within international sport. So rather than confront the same challenges as the ice hockey and ski federations, other international federations took steps to minimize the growing tensions among host countries, NATO, the ATO, and themselves. So the Ice Hockey World Championships prompted other international federations to reconsider the allocation of their events to the United States. Just two weeks after the ice hockey tournament concluded in Colorado Springs, 17 East Germans submitted TTGs to compete at the 1962 Wrestling World Championships in Toledo, Ohio that would take place in June. The Berlin Mission reported to the State Department that judging from the appearance of the TTD applications, a number of which were carelessly completed, lacking in photographs, et cetera, the East Germans do not believe that they have any chance of obtaining the TTDs and are merely submitting the applications so they can later claim that the ATO has refused to issue the document. Indeed, the lack of any East German follow-up on the TTD applications by the wrestlers for more than two months and not until Two days before the Wrestling World Championships actually started in June, and Maynuch, they, had to, they were checking in on these in Berlin, they still would need to fly to Ohio. Um, this meant this really confirmed the Americans' earlier impression. But unlike for ice hockey or skiing, the Soviet team did not boycott the event or even threaten to do so. In this instance, they only protested East Germany's exclusion when the International Federation had its meeting in Toledo um, around the event. Soviet wrestlers had dominated the 1961 World Championships and again came away with more medals than any other country in Toledo. In contrast to the extensive publicity given to Chamonix in Colorado Springs, East German media buried the story about their athletes' inability to participate in Toledo to halfway through the single two-paragraph story after the wrestling championships ended. But as the complete inability of East Germans to compete in world championships in the United States became clearer to the international federations that had recognized the German Democratic Republic, they began to relocate events from American cities to other countries to which the East German athletes would be able to travel. The International Weightlifting Federation, or IWF, had selected Hershey, Pennsylvania, home of the world famous chocolate company to host its 1962 World Championships. Um, And they made that selection in September, 1961. So just a month after the Berlin Wall had appeared. By March, 1962, the IWF realized the problems that this decision would likely bring to their sport. The two politically marred World Championships prompted the British Secretary General of the IWF to contact the American Embassy in London while the Ice Hockey World Championships were underway, and for him to also contact the ATO. Both the State Department and the ATO reiterated the policies that were in place using the same replies that they had sent to the IHF, now to the IWF. Because the organizers in Hershey could not provide a guarantee that all athletes and officials would be permitted to enter the country, the IWF immediately asked them to relinquish the event. Budapest, already scheduled to host the European Championships in Hungary, agreed to organize the World Championships as well. Now, this doubling up of events was actually quite normal for the IWF. Only when the World Championships took place in a continent other than Europe were separate European Championships held. And when the IWF Secretary General told the International Olympic Committee President and Chancellor that the event had been relocated to Hungary, which could offer Free access to all teams, he concluded his letter by commenting that we have ensured that our World Championships will not be spoiled by the same unfortunate incidents as occurred at Chamonix, Colorado Springs, and one or two other cities. The IOC Chancellor supported this outcome, responding, Your decision is a very good one, and we hope it will be followed by other international federations too. With the changed venue of the World Championships in Budapest, the IWF did not have to worry about Soviet Black countries withdrawing. Even though no East Germans meddled. 14 athletes from the Soviet Union, Hungary, and Poland did. The IWF understood the importance of Eastern European participants in its sport, demonstrated by their success at the World Championships, and why they had to move the event. Even though this event garnered minimal publicity, its forced relocation over the travel issue provided East Germany and the Communist Bloc a victory over the United States and NATO, setting a precedent for other international federations. Similarly, the International Archery Federation, um, (FITA) moved its 1963 World Championships from a NATO member state to a country that did not impose travel restrictions. In the summer of 1962, the Grand National Archery Society, the governing body for the sport here in Britain, received confirmation from the government that East German athletes at present could not obtain visas to enter the country for competition. The archery governing body then contacted all FIDA member countries asking about their likelihood of participating in the 1963 World Championships in England. And I couldn't ever find where in England they were scheduled for, so all I know is England. After receiving several negative responses as a result of the Cold War political climate, the Grand National Archery Society's council met in September, 1962. They agreed that if England hosted the world championships, a number of important countries would be absent and that the meeting could not be regarded as being in the best interests or traditions of the sport. This regrettable regrettable conclusion has been reached purely as a result of the political situation. They therefore withdrew their offer to organize the 1963 World Championships. So the FIDA president, who was um, Mrs. Inger K. Frith, also of Great Britain, and in fact, the first female president of any international federation, she immediately contacted all FIDA member states regarding England's withdrawal in the hopes of securing a new host for the 1963 World Championships. But in the process of doing so, she ended her letter um, less than optimistically noting that it should be pointed out at present, the present difficulties over visas apply to all NATO countries, half our members. Ultimately, Helsinki Finland agreed to host the 1963 Archery World Championships and East Germany competed in the event for the very first time, albeit without much success. FIDA, like the weightlifting federation, prevented its world championships from turning into a disaster in the wake of the Berlin crisis by moving its event to a non-NATO, and in this case, non-aligned country. These two federations, seeing firsthand the challenges arising from the ATO and originally selected host countries, took action to minimize the potential damage Cold War tensions would have on their world championships. Of course, moving the events to different countries was a clear acknowledgement of the impact of international politics on sports. Other events, however, proceeded as planned in the NATO member states, including the smaller states that had minimal influence um, on NATO policy, it seemed, and especially no influence on the tripartite decisions regarding East German travel. The International Cycling Union, or UCI, um, had a French secretary general at the time who lamented that because the UCI had recognized the two German states separately, its annual congresses and world championships often lacked East German participation the world championships for three of cycling's four disciplines in 1962 took place in nato member states track cycling and road cycling in italy and cyclocross in luxembourg in all three cases east germans could not obtain the ttd from the allied travel office and luxembourg also denied the east german visa applications as well the east german cycling federation publicly called for the cyclocross event to be moved to another state but like the other two World Championships in February 1962, this event went ahead in the original host country. UCI faced the same problem the following year with Cyclocross World Championships and its annual Congress scheduled in France and the Track and Road Cycling Championships in Belgium, leaving the East Germans out of all but one of UCI's major events for a second year in a row. And the travel ban even impacted junior teams, with the East German under-18 soccer team unable to participate in a 1964 Continental Tournament in the Netherlands. As a result of all of these travel problems, some international federations began to implement policies that required all event host cities be located in countries that would guarantee travel and participation by all international federation member states. The International Weightlifting Federation had implemented this policy at its meeting in Toledo, Ohio, right as the East Germans could not participate in those 1962 World Championships. They also then selected Bulgaria and Sweden for the following year's World Championships, both of which, as a communist bloc state and a neutral country, respectively, would not have the same problems as the 1962 event in the United States. In federations that did not create a specific policy, members remembered those instances when they voted to select future host cities after the Berlin crisis. Now, the IWS response to the problems encountered with Toledo in 1962 clearly showed the biggest concern arising from the exclusion of East German athletes, that only neutral or communist states would host international sporting events, because these countries could guarantee free entry for all athletes. And officials, international federations increasingly realized sporting events and meetings needed to be organized in either the Eastern Europe or the neutral states of Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, and Austria. Which, as the secretary treasurer of the International Federation for Track and Field noted, was a most inconvenient way of running European sport. And with a statement like that, he was definitely British. Events could take place. On other continents, it didn't have to take place in Europe, but with the majority of sport leaders primarily residing in Europe, most European and international sport business was conducted in Europe. In the aftermath of the Chamonix debacle, this considered a proposal submitted simultaneously by four different communist bloc um, federations, which demanded all future world championship hosts guarantee entry into their country. FIST though recognized that national federations cannot make guarantees on behalf of their governments. So those communist state delegates ultimately withdrew their proposals and FIST tabled that discussion, largely hoping that no further difficulties would arise for their events in the future. But this scenario, the American vice president of FIS remarked, would allow the communist bloc to achieve the propaganda that only in communist countries is sport free from the insidious influence of the NATO politics. Sport leaders from NATO states then realized this sentiment was increasing across all international federations, which had the potential to really limit their traditional influence within sport. Now, international sport could therefore not avoid the impact of the Berlin Wall and NATO's travel restrictions. Federations that had recognized East Germany outright faced the issue most acutely, as did federations for team sports or sports that Eastern European countries dominated. If an East German ban resulted in a communist bloc boycott, team sports had the greatest vulnerability with disrupted group schedules when teams withdrew. Organizers were then left with an uneven number of teams and imbalanced groups, along with pre-sold tickets to matches. That were no longer happening. Individual sports such as cycling or archery could more easily cope with the loss of a few athletes. Although, if the 1963 um, archery world championships hadn't moved to Finland and a Soviet block, um, the Soviet bloc boycotted the event, um, the world championships would have lost 25% of the women's competition. When a significant number of the best athletes in a sport resided behind the Iron Curtain, such as in weightlifting, moving the event was essential for its viability. What transpired in 1962 and 1963 within international sport demonstrated that the Berlin crisis was not limited to a single city or the two German states. The ability of East Germany to participate and where sporting events could be held had become widespread problems affecting all NATO states and most international federations. In order to prepare for future problems within international sport, diplomats from the United States, Great Britain, France, and the Federal Republic began circulating a list of upcoming international sporting events to which the East Germans would likely be invited. Similarly, the International Olympic Committee was so concerned with this frequency with which travel restrictions had affected international sport by December, 1963, that it requested each international federation provide details about any events that have been troubled by the refusal of visas the ensuing dossier the front page of which you can see here that the ioc compiled counted 10 world championships three european championships six congresses from the international federations, and 11 other cases affected by the refusal of visas to east german representatives between 1959 and 1963 although almost all of those actually happened between 1962 and 1963. So even before the IOC's creation of this exhaustive list, sport had already felt the impact of travel restrictions on East Germans acutely. Member States' efforts to remind the public that they'd only implemented these policies in response to the GDR's physical division of Berlin with the erection of the wall were drowned out by the outcry of sporting events repeatedly being disrupted. In fact, just days before the Alpine Skiing World Championships in Chamonix began, um, NATO's Political Advisors Committee was having a meeting, and the chairman said at that meeting that with the skiing and ice hockey event, this was the first time in which the Berlin situation had been brought home to the wider public because of their interest in sports. He thought NATO should take advantage of this occasion to get across their case rather than be on the defensive. By that time, however, NATO was already facing a hell battle. A sports writer for the Lowell Massachusetts Fund wrote in his regular column on the same day that the NATO political advisors were meeting, and he wrote that politics has reared its ugly head in sport, noting the problems affecting skiing and ice hockey and anticipating the problems that would likely hit wrestling later that summer, he lamented While not wishing to debate foreign policy with the State Department, we can't help but feel that the travel ban on East German athletic teams wishing to compete in amateur world championships is somewhat ridiculous and detrimental to the goodwill the free world usually seems anxious to promote. This negative opinion regarding NATO's actions was not limited to this one sports writer or even to the United States. A German foreign ministry representative had said to his American, British, and French diplomatic colleagues in Bonn that following week that public opinion should be educated to combat the fact that press and public opinion was not wholly on the side of NATO government in this matter. Diplomats at NATO and in the foreign ministries increasingly considered these problems arising within sport as damaging public opinion against the alliance. Instead of being lauded for hosting an exciting and successfully organized world championships, NATO states faced extensive press criticism for actions that impacted the quality of competition or the event's relocation to another country. Trying to change negative public opinion when it came to political interference in sport was a challenge, even though international sport had long been promoted by both sport officials and governments as an arena where political differences could be overcome. Direct political intervention in the running of an officially sanctioned international event, however, did the opposite of using sport as a form of public diplomacy. Instead, it soured populations against a country's government. The New York Times foreign sports correspondent had questioned who would rush to organize an international sporting event after having seen all of the losses in Chamonix. And international federations worried about this problem because it meant the potential loss of many traditional host venues. NATO diplomats saw the international federations move events out of their countries and worried about their potential inability to be selected to future events, including the crown jewel of international sport, the Olympic Games. British IOC member Lord David Burley, Marcus of Exeter, wrote to the Foreign Office at the start of 1963 to express his grave concerns on the matter. He wrote, "I feel that I should point out to you that the NATO policy on visas for East Germans is automatically rolling out countries from having either the Olympic Games or area championships. Where these, with all their prestige, will go, I leave to your imagination. I do hope that something may happen before October when the International Olympic Committee will decide where the next Olympic Games are to be. For if the visa embargo remains, they cannot be in any NATO country, which will, apart from other obvious disadvantages, be highly unpopular with their very large sporting publics. Burley rightly noticed how all of these factors, NATO policy, the Olympic selection, international sport more generally, and public opinion came together over the German problem in ways that did not look favorably on Western democracies. The impact of the Berlin Wall on international sport not only led to events being relocated from NATO member states or having depleted fields, but it also prompted the IOC to demand a guarantee of free entry into the country for all athletes and officials from all of the countries bidding to host the 1968 Olympics, both summer and winter. The IOC was selecting these hosts for the event um, for the Summer Olympics in October, 1963, and the Winter Olympics in January, 1964. So the matter brought a sense of urgency to the four NATO member states that had cities bidding for these contests, the United States, France, Canada, and Norway. But at the same time, some member NATO member states argued that the travel policy, which was implemented in response to the construction of the Berlin Wall, should be relaxed because the threat of negative publicity from East Germans being prevented from competing in sporting events was more damaging than the restrictions themselves. Indeed, the four NATO member states with cities bidding to host the 1968 Olympic Games increasingly recognized that this NATO policy hurt their own city's chances of winning the biggest international sporting event in the world. The inability of East Germany to make gains in other areas had left sport the most prominent, and because of its widespread popularity and global media coverage the most visible field in their efforts to gain international recognition. These efforts, though, became tangled with the issue of free travel. The Berlin Wall divided a city, but its ramifications went beyond Berlin itself, making the freedom to travel a major problem confronting both diplomats and international sport in the 1960s thank you very much for listening to my talk. And on the other hand, if you would like to buy a copy of the book, um, there are two discounts that the University of um, Massachusetts has, which I'll shamelessly plug right now. Um, If you're in the U.S., you can get a 40% discount um, with the top code. And if you're outside of the U.S., um, what was probably perhaps a better deal is um, free international shipping. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Uh, thanks for a fascinating and forensic uh, talk. Um, I'm not sure how you clap now. I mean so there's, a, there's a symbol, isn't there, but I can't use it. So I'll just go like that. Um, for the questions, we've decided uh to do what we usually do, I think, in both seminars, which is either to use the chat function. So if, do feel free to just say you want to ask a question in the chat or state your question in the chat but but generally i think it it's worked well if you just unmute yourself and ask your question um so um are there any are there any questions uh of heather immediately um perhaps while everyone's thinking about that i could ask uh, a a question um i just wondered Heather, how far business and sponsorship was relevant in in all of this, I I can see that, you know, for the archery world championships, perhaps this isn't a, a major question, but certainly in football, um, it, it would have been, uh, I, I think. And I wondered whether the uh, presumably parallel bids for the World Cup, I'm not sure when, <laughs> when was England bidding for 1966? Had all that been decided Uh before the period you're talking about so i just wondered and obviously the european championships are running at the same time i have just looked it up i didn't know this but apparently in 64 it was held in spain um so that clearly is in a native country and 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 would have fallen fallen foul of uh of, of the travel uh freedom of travel so i i wondered how far how far business became involved, particularly in, in football, but also in other in other major sports?
1: So I'd say at this time, um, it, it wasn't really the the sponsors or the business side of things and um, playing a role in any of these decisions being made, but um, the IHF was anticipating significant revenue from world championships in the United States, you know, great television times for both the US and primarily the Canadian market. Um, Colorado Springs the Broadmoor Resort had actually hosted um, a huge portion if not all of the collegiate ice hockey championships in the U.S. Mm -hmm. at that point so it it was a real hotbed for um, you know this was going to be a successful well-attended tournament so Mm -hmm. um, the the money aspect was there but not in a way that we see the sponsors um, playing a a bigger role today in, in those kind of um, conversations Um, and soccer is, a um, it is a slightly more complicated one. Um, I can't remember offhand. Um, I think England had already been allocated 66, but maybe not. Um, maybe it was around this time. Um, but when it came to, um, the Euros and, and the world cup, um, the East Germans and West Germans both were in the different pools for, um, you know, in, in qualifying as as they normally did. Um and it did become problematic when um they were supposed to try to qualify and, and play in a NATO country that's kind of um home and home was was a bit of a challenge and, and problem. Um, but East Germany really wasn't that good and so um rarely qualified uh, for the big tournaments in um to actually make it so it it often became a, a bit of a, a moot point in in that instance.
0: Okay, thank you. Um- does anyone else have a question? Yeah, Chris, I can see you.
2: Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Heather. That's fascinating. Um, I don't know too much about the international sport angle, but uh, at the risk of falling foul of Godwin's law, what, was there any discussion of the 1936 Olympics and the way that this particular sporting occasion had kind of lent a, a kind of like a respectability and even a prestige to another, uh, you know, uh, autocratic. Uh, Raising, did it play any role in the kind of like the international discussion around this decision, or um, what what have you found?
1: So no one really talks about thirty six in, in that way, but everyone wants to host the Olympics because they recognize that it will give them prestige, it will give them this, you know, it, it's that positive public diplomacy. It, it will give them this global platform where the world will be watching and and wanting to come to that place. Um. So yes, the same reasons why eventually um the you know hitler ultimately agreed oh yes we we got this thing and and now we should actually use it for what it's worth um yeah other countries have continued to do so and you know that that is why so many of these you know the foreign ministries were getting involved and and they recognized yes we want to have the olympics come here we want to host these world championships it will put our country in in a good light except for the fact that then there was this massive backfiring every time the East Germans couldn't come and and the events were a bit tarnished. So it was definitely there. They're they're never talking about it from 1936, but it is those same ideas, absolutely.
0: Thank you. Um, Does anyone else have a question? Sebastian, I can see your hand.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks, heather for, for great talk. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm asking one of these slightly unfair questions because uh, it overlaps with so, so much I, I've seen in my work. Uh, in your document on sport, um, is that sort of a broader issue uh, beyond Germany? Because I mean, I looked at sovereignty also sort of in comparative terms between Germany and, and China and Korea. And obviously, I, I've quickly checked but i think it's a similar story when you look at north korea and the prc in terms of sport, international sporting events that they are both kind of excluded i think north korea is invited back earlier because the u.s wants to normalize relationships i think in the mid-60s they, but i think the prc only they're there in the early 50s and then again i think in the 80s uh, i think uh, again so in in other words, is is the story you 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 told us about Berlin? Is that a much wider anti-communist mobilisation through sports that we actually see, uh, in which which these federations then have to have to navigate? Um, uh, so so yeah. It, it, in in other words, is is this sort of very much centred on Europe and, and and on Berlin, or is this always debated in this broader context of? Uh, particularly these, these corporal frontline states where obviously sport becomes immediately political when it's, you know, a, a different flag and a different anthem is attached to uh, athletes entering a stadium.
1: So at the same time of the German problem, um, there's often what in, in sport is kind of the two China problem with, with um, China and Taiwan. And um, these often appear at the same meetings, but will be talked about as two separate kind of agenda items um, within international federations. Um, and Korea on occasion, um, but North Korea is kind of out of sport a bit more, not as um, in, in this time. Um, and so I, I I wouldn't say it's an, an anti-communist sentiment um, within in sport. Um, they do, you know, sometimes, and it also is a matter within each international federation who's recognized and, and who's participating. Um, Because if if China wasn't trying to participate in an international federation and only Taiwan was recognized, then it really wasn't an issue for that international federation. Um, So it only becomes an issue when both countries want to be recognized and and compete in in that sport. Um, But they sometimes as when members would write back or, you know, they'd be at these international federation meetings and then they kind of write back and talk to the rest of um, their their colleagues within their own country, you know, they, they might mention the two, the German issue and, and the two China issue around the same time, but they do often keep these discussions a bit separate, even though they are happening often in, in parallel to each other. So I hope that kind of answers your question um, a little bit, that they're kind of happening at the same time, but it's not a wider um, anti-communist kind of um, effort within the federations.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks. Okay um anyone else got a question i'm just looking down my list of participants see if anything's come up but please just unmute yourself and ask if you if you do Paul's have a paul
2: has got his hand up uh, uh mark someone called paul
0: paul <laughs> is that a clap or a hand up
2: it's it's a hand up uh, if it, Sorry, like, I... yeah. <laughs> um, not too late to change my mind but yeah um no i did have a question if that's okay um thanks heather um Again, I mean, maybe slightly unfair in a way to kind of ask you about some of this beyond what you've presented today, but I was I was really struck by the um, newspaper article you showed towards the end there. And you, you seem to sort of suggest in your comments that that was representative of quite a widespread strand of public opinion. So in the first instance, I wonder if you could just comment a little bit more about where public opinion is on this on this issue. And the the question is kind of partly prompted by what what comes later, I was thinking, and Sebastian actually just mentioned the 80s, didn't he? I was thinking about what happens in 1980 and 84, when you have these tit-for-tat boycotts, um, Moscow and Los Angeles Olympics. So I suppose also the kind of subsidiary question is, in a way, well, how important is public opinion then in the 60s on this issue? And does that change over the next 10-15 sort of years, and is it a question of public opinion kind of catching up with this more sort of cold warrior agenda by the early 80s, or is it that public opinion um, is, is weighted differently in these decisions in the period that you're talking about, if that makes sense? Thanks.
1: It's a great question, um, and the public opinion aspect is is always complicated. Um, you know how representative are newspaper articles you know as a columnist as a writer of everyone um it's it's hard to know um but there was quite a lot um of, of negative commentary about um all of these sporting events being impacted by these travel restrictions um and, and widespread not just the united states but um you know in the us Um in in norway in canada and in all of these countries you know anytime a sporting event was going to be impacted by it. There'd be a lot of of um, negative coverage. And um, sometimes the foreign ministries would try to talk with their um, journalists and try to keep the NATO line um, as much as they could in the press, which was something a smaller country like Norway was a little bit uh, more able to achieve than something like the United States. Um, and obviously. The Eastern European press um, was constantly, you know, using this as, as, as propaganda. And um, But what I would say is that, regardless of how widespread it was or not, NATO perceived it as being very bad for public opinion and bad for public opinion of the organization. And NATO already had challenges, you know, why should these countries, you know, fund this international entity that, it's hard to see what they're actually doing. I mean, we, you know, still have these, These NATO still has these issues today. And so NATO was very concerned about how bad it was making the organization look. And I've kept trying to, to comment on this. Um, and that was something all of the NATO delegates were raising anytime one of those events was happening in their country, regardless of if it was as big as, you know, Chamonix and Colorado Springs, or if it was a small, um, other sporting event. I mean, there were so many that, that were impacted. I um, mean, you know, they were constantly raising this as they viewed this as a really big issue. Um, but what I would say is it not going all the way till 1980, but actually it's by the end of the decade and sport kind of allows for detente to happen um, within international sport, within the, the German situation um, before it fully is um, within diplomacy or or diplomats and and international relations. And so in some ways, um, that public opinion does help. um, And ultimately, um, the travel restrictions are slightly loosened a little bit um, towards the end of the, um, over the coming years, towards the the second half of the 60s. And then ultimately, um, by uh, within 1968, Grenoble, so France does win the Winter Olympics in 68, and they kind of have to play around with some of the rules and like technically it's not an East separate East German Olympic team, even though it kind of is, but they have to dance around the rules um, because these NATO restrictions are still there. um, But then shortly thereafter, they basically go away. Um, So that sense of public opinion kind of driving that change, or at least contributing to those concerns that the diplomats have um, and why they some of them want to make changes to these policies.
0: Can I ask a question Oh, sorry, I'm getting sorry, some feedback there. I'm not sure what's happening. Um, yeah, about NATO itself. Um, I just wondered how far um, the different states, and particularly France, I mean, I was, when you were talking about Chamonix and the world championships and skiing, I was thinking of the French position within, within NATO, which was obviously shifting uh, in precisely this period under de Gaulle. I guess de Gaulle himself wasn't that bothered about skiing, but. But nevertheless, um, there must have been some tension within, within Gaulist ranks about the way in which France has been treated within, within NATO. Does this exacerbate these sorts of tensions within NATO itself or do they just maintain a, a, a common front and argue with the federations in sport?
1: No, it's incredibly contentious within NATO. And actually, at this point in um, the 60s, they're actually still in Paris. NATO headquarters is still in Paris. They haven't yet moved to Brussels. Um, and so absolutely, these, these tensions are, are very much there. Um, and it's these tensions between you know, the three countries who are controlling the ATO, um, the four countries who have cities bidding for the Olympic Games, and then just other ones who, you know, they're like, but we want to have a, a European world championship in you know speed skating, because that's about all we can host. And we want it to be a good event. Um, you know, and, and and it really does become an issue, and they all get involved um, and and in a way that, that sport really allows all of these, all the NATO member states to really, you know, put forward their, their views, and it's not just the Americans, French, Brits, and Germans, you know, kind of pushing mm. through what they want. Um, and so these these tensions um it these meetings just go on and on where they're debating this travel policy on east germans for sport and and out of all of those categories sport really is the most contentious because it has the most media coverage you know when the, the mm. crystallographers or other random scientists you know are denied uh, a visa to come to go to berkeley and and present at some conference you know that doesn't make the newspapers because nobody knows what that science is and it you know nobody cares but they care when it's sport and it's sport that potentially is going to be on TV and have photographs in the newspapers and so and um, they debate the the relaxation of the travel restrictions week after week for years um, in in the mid 60s about it. And so um, absolutely all these tensions play out. And and there are some concerns about how the French are acting because it it does seem in some ways like, you know, um, that it is mirroring um, De Gaulle's kind of, you know, frustrations with with NATO as well. Um, It doesn't it doesn't directly come down that way, it seems through the, the French foreign ministry, um, their files and, and their directions, but it's very much perceived that way by some of the other NATO member states.
0: Okay. Um, any other questions? Can I list again? I'm just checking chats as well, just to so make absolutely sure uh sebastian you've got your hand up again
3: uh yeah um i mean and by the way i just uh i think i just saw earlier that i think the us won't send any delegates to beijing in 2022 so yeah definitely very timely work, <laughs> work you're doing but i think they still, they, they still send athletes um i wondered whether you could talk a little bit about these federations because i was wondering so to what extent is also membership in these federations shifting over time i mean we see that in other international bodies in the same period, in the UN, for example, UNESCO, or any other of these these big international organisations, that with you know more states becoming independent, more members being admitted, uh, also the membership shifts, and therefore maybe the politics shift. So is is that the same for these sport federations, or are they fairly consistently led by you know people from Europe and, and North America, or? or do we see a shift there as well that, that suddenly, you know, people from other parts of the world um, where certain sports might be even more popular than in, in the West so become more uh, more prominent after independence from colonial rule, for example.
1: So I'd say and it's really until more recently are we seeing non-Europeans and the occasional non-North American running international uh, federations. Um, a lot of them have, Almost always, or at least up until this point, through the sixties and seventies, had Europeans as their their presidents, and then and, and other than archery, they were all European men. Um, ice hockey was a bit of an anomaly in that they kept shifting, and they it was a rotation. It would be a European president, and then a um, North American president, and then a European and North American, but you know, really just kind of American or U.S. or Canadian. Um, so. Ice hockey was a bit of an anomaly in in that respect, but recognizing um, the smaller number of of member state and how important it was that sport was between um, both continents. Um, but as their membership, um, it some of them are are stable. Um, some of them do have a tremendous growth in um, numbers after um you know waves of decolonization. Obviously, um, FIFA for soccer is one of those. Um the IAAF now World Athletics for track and field. It's a matter of, of who's really playing that sport. But what we do see in the 50s and 60s is a concern by some federations, particularly, I'd say the winter sport federations, that new countries are asking to be members, but it's unclear how much that sport is really participated, you know, played in, in those countries. Um, and so there were concerns by some of the Western um um, Members of these international federations, like, was it the communist bloc just trying to get more members so that they would have a bigger voting block within those federations? Um, And so sometimes they would say, "You'll be a provisional member," um, because they wanted to know, like, are people really, you know, skiing in Mongolia? Or because I think that was one that they they questioned, um, you know, and and so you'd have. um, It's cold there. so you know they they didn't necessarily know what was really happening with that sport within that country um but i you know the east germany getting its membership itself was really contentious all throughout the 50s and into for a couple of the sports in the 1960s um and so that sense you know that that was this real battle um that very much grew out of how the occupation of germany was um in the late 40s and that West Germany actually just resumed Germany's membership um, in pretty much every federation, and so it was these ones where, um, particularly, they had recognized East Germany earlier, which is where you then had these these bigger problems. Um,
2: some of the ones that I talked about today.
0: Thank you. Any final questions? Just looking. No one on my list so at uh, this point then I'd, I'd very much like to uh, thank Heather again for uh, for the talk and at least for the German historians or the modern German history seminar members amongst us uh, for showing us the very close connections between politics and sport which is new to uh, some of us, uh, for showing us